2: No purchase necessary. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Save my I'm going down
3: for the last time. All right. Good day wherever you're listening from. I think it's noon. Yes, it is. So it's time for Indoor Air Quality Radio. Today is Friday, April 25th, 2014, and this week, episode 324 is coming to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes. Here with me in the studio at the controls is Jessica Lawson.
1: Hello,
2: everyone.
3: Hello, Jess. Uh, The Z-Man is on the road today. He won't be joining us. He is in Little Rock, Arkansas, I do believe. He's got some business meetings down there, so... He'll be back next week, joining us today as our guest. Along with uh, myself, is going to be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Waw. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at John Don,
2: J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
3: All right, we're going to uh, get the trivia question here in about five minutes. I see i got a couple trivia folks on, so I want to make sure we get that out today. Uh, We're actually going to do a repeat from last week because I don't think anybody got it. I didn't see anything on that, Jess. Okay, anyway, we're going to talk today a little bit about I've got three different segments. One is going to be a little review of some of the... Conferences and meetings that I've been to here over the last couple of months. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about healthy buildings and our upcoming Healthy Building Summit. And the third segment will be with uh, myself and Dr. Wow again. But we're going to talk a lot with Dieter about, you know, where this industry came from, essentially, in some respects. I don't know if it's all respects, but in some respects, a lot of what we do came from the early days of asbestos abatement. And I want to talk about that with Dieter since he was, the, I believe, the first asbestos training center maybe in the country uh, back at the University of Pittsburgh. So do we have some music for Dr. Wow? We- and then I want to, want to get this old house. Yeah, let's get Dieter on. Okay. All right, Dieter, do we have you on the line? I hear you. All right, everybody knows our technical director, Dr. Dietrich. Wow, great to have you back at the helm here, Dieter, with us Uh we were talking about a job earlier today where we've got some some crazy uh, chemical uh, downwind from a plant. That's just tough, you know, when you're right downwind from a plant, we've got to deal with it. But we'll talk about that as we go along. I wanted to go into uh, a little bit about some of the conferences that, that I've attended over the last... Oh, two months now, Dieter. I've been on the road quite a bit and uh, trying to come in and do the shows every Friday. It started with um, the Indoor Air Quality Association Conference, which was a nice conference, actually, in Nashville, Tennessee this year. Saw a lot of good people I hadn't seen before or hadn't seen in a long time. And um, I guess the the highlights on that one um, were, were some of the keynote addresses were really good. I thought that the legal talks were good. They had uh, David Governor and uh, let's see, gentlemen. Oh, Michael Bowden talking a little bit on on some legal issues with respect to, especially like expert witness information, uh, how to how to handle yourself as an expert witness, how to stay out of trouble. It seems like one of the key things, Dieter, in this uh, because I know you do a lot of expert witnesses, um, just to kind of know when to shut up and, and stop talking. Is that the, a, a good piece of advice?
1: Well, yes, absolutely.
3: And you got to watch that. I,
1: my style with A, writing reports and answering questions has changed. I do it as short as possible. You have to remember every sentence you write, every idea you have, every opinion you're expressing is ready for cross-examination. So some lawyers uh, with whom I'm working, they want every detail. I don't want that. I give them a general idea of what I know and what my opinion is, and that's about it. The other thing, you got to watch out. Um, uh, some lawyers are very good at cross-examinating you, <laughs> and uh, uh, they want you to say more. Hopefully you say more than just yes or no. Sometimes I have a problem when somebody asks me a question. I said, that can't really be answered with only yes or only no. It gives the wrong impression. And uh, now you're opening already a can of worms. Some of my lawyers say, Dieter, let it go. I am going uh, to get back at it uh, when, uh, on recross. I clean that up. Don't, don't you put yourself into a uh, an awkward uh, position where somebody said, oh, but he is here you said it," and of course they like to quote you. Um, uh, 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 sometimes you say one single sentence uh, uh, out of context, and all of a sudden you see they say, "I
3: never said that," and so you know it's a tough situation you really want to help your client you want to help but but you have to be objective and you have to really keep it keep it short now as far as the yes and no question you you said um and that can't be answered yes or no how do they typically handle that when you when you come back with that question with that response i guess it would be it can't be necessarily easily answered just yes or no how, right. What what happens then? Do they object to that? Do they, You know, because they're typically looking for...
1: I know. Well, that, that one of the comebacks uh, is from the other side, and I don't like that at all, said, let us assume hypothetically. And uh, uh, then whenever that question or whenever that comment comes, I, I give you a hypothetical question. A hypothetical question is asked to... Uh, Know what you said before, or not to go to the issue. So let's let's hypothetically assume uh, that uh, my client inhaled a lethal dose of asbestos fibers. Wouldn't it be hypothetically? Would that be good for him? Or they said, "Well, if it relevant? yeah." The answer, of course, is if it's lethal, uh, well, the person will probably die. We don't know when there is a lag time, but anyway, so Would it has nothing to do with the with the numbers that I or somebody else presented. No. And. Uh, that always uh, muddles the whole situation with these hypotheticals.
3: Now, at that point, though, would your attorney then step in and, and object to the line of questioning that it's a hypothetical and that that's not... Uh,
1: hopefully, he should do
3: that. It depends. Okay.
1: It depends how bad the damage... He he sus- uh, suspects that the damage is. Okay. But by and large, if you have a good lawyer on your side, he should pick that up and come back to it rather than you are trying to play lawyer and educate the lawyer. That's not your job. In fact, they don't like that.
3: You know, that was another thing that um, I want to say Michael uh, Bowden brought up in his discussion of, you know, doing expert witness work. And that was that you're not there to educate the other attorney and that but that becomes tempting, you know. Um you want him to understand why you did what you did so you start to educate him on it and then you end up kind of hanging yourself because later he can come back and use some of that testimony, you know, and say, Well, didn't you say when you were, you know, blah blah blah? Exactly right. Okay. Okay, Dieter. Well that was a you know, I thought that was a great couple of presentations, and in fact, when I, I did a presentation later in the event on supervising indoor environmental quality, I had to run back to the room and, and change a bunch of things, because another area that they really, really, really focused on, which I I try and focus on in every class with people, was communication and the forms of communication. and and the importance of communication and that was reinforced later at the ria conference which i'll i'll talk about in a moment so we talked a lot about communication and forms of communication and documenting communication i'm wondering how often does that come up with you and you're um you're doing more though i would imagine you're doing more expert witness testimony on kind of the facts behind the case not necessarily whether they were communicated properly from one person to another
1: That is correct. Uh, In fact, I'm just working on something. (laughs) I get deposition transcripts and a couple of other materials, which gives me an idea of what was going on, and um, I get the copy of the complaint, where everybody said, hey, my client was exposed to this and this and this when he worked there and there and there. So, uh, yeah, that is mainly what I am doing. I have not been questioned on any of the industrial hygiene surveys uh, I I did in the last 10 years or so, uh, they, they were not conducted because there were complaints or lawsuits. Those are standard things that I do routinely for a couple of my old clients. And nobody has asked me over there. And again, there I keep it as short as possible. No, I, I don't write more than it is absolutely necessary. I have one client, and uh, there I'm sampling for lead. And I said, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm sampling for lead, and here are the results. That's it. And I and I and I, I, I summarize it very succinctly. I said, out of fifteen samples, fourteen were uh, below the action level and one was above the action level and one was above the, uh, the permissible exposure level from OSHA. And uh, therefore, uh, it, when when workers work in that environment, they have to wear respirators. Bang, that's it. I don't try to tell them where it comes from, uh, whether perhaps, well, that's, that's the old classic thing. Uh, you always can improve the ventilation, even if you have good ventilation. You can always improve it. Uh, So I don't write this. Well, if we may be adding 10% more exhaust volume, it may go down lower. That's speculation on my part. Uh, Would that be a good idea? Sure. It will not hurt.
3: Well... You know, Dieter, I'd like to talk more about that in a little bit, but... Um, I know, that's fine. We've got so many things going on here. Let's go to a little bit more on the IAQA conference. I thought having um, Bob Krell there, and he was at, actually, IAQA, RIA. He was at the, mold, uh, the main Indoor Air Quality Council. He's been at every one of these meetings. And, by the way, if you get a chance, check out Bob's uh, magazine. Um, in fact, Jess, if you could pull that up for me and get an idea of it. I think it's it's Bob Crow and it's um, maybe Healthy Indoors or something like that. I'd like to give listeners to the link to the, the link to that because he did a good summary of um the conventions that he went to this year. Another thing we saw a lot of more emphasis on um, VOCs, volatile organic compounds and and how they affect indoor environments. That seems to be an up-and-coming topic, even though it's always been an indoor air quality thing. I just saw more of it this year. And the other last thing I saw a lot more of was a lot of presentations and discussion about how energy efficiency and indoor environmental quality kind of intersect and and where the potential problems are and also where we can cooperate better when we're doing energy efficiency upgrades and making sure that the indoor environmental quality still stays good as well. And one other thing I want to mention was a presentation on dampness and how to measure dampness and, and trying to get a more standardized way of defining dampness from Kevin Kennedy and Carl Grimes and I would urge people if you get a chance to to get a copy of their paper and I'm, I'm sure Kevin would be happy to do that. Uh, just send me an email at joe.hughes at IAQ training and we'll be happy to get you something out on that. Now the next one was the RIA, the Restoration Industry Association. My first time there, great job. Good to see people like Pete Consigli and uh, saw Patty Harmon and a lot of other great people there at the RIA conference. This was um, the big one there. There was two presentations that really caught my attention. One was the property insurance industry overview. They had a, a guy there from J.D. Powers who had gone out and they had surveyed you know property owners who had had claims and try to figure out how satisfied they were with how their claim was handled. And these were typically either fire, I would imagine, or water damage restorations. And he had a list of things that he felt were, you know, the keys to a satisfactory or unsatisfactory rating and and the key things were the the service interaction was a big one you know so how responsive people were did they you know return calls which is still you know believe it or not people don't return calls uh were they courteous were they well spoken um you know did they give a thorough explanation of what they were doing as opposed to just saying you know hey you're in good hands we're going to take care of the issues you'll you'll be fine Uh, actually explaining the process. We're going to come in, we're going to extract all the liquid water, we're going to put in some dehumidifiers, we're going to put in air movers to help promote air movement in the area, we're going to monitor the temperature, the relative humidity, the moisture content, we're going to verify through moisture readings that the materials are back to what we call the dry standard. So giving people a thorough explanation of what you were doing, he felt was one of the secrets to better service interaction. Um, Another thing was to avoid claimants speaking to the manager or what they call escalation. Nothing wrong with talking to the manager if it's to call and say, hey, your guys did a great job or whatever the case may be. But one of the things they measured carefully was how often things escalated to the point where you were talking to a manager Um, the other very simple and basic thing was knowing ensuring that the claimant knows who to contact for questions so you know this is the guy you call if you can't catch him because he's on another project or his cell phone is you know goes to voicemail and you need to talk to someone right away here's the backup number you call call our office manager at our office or whatever the case may be He felt that was an area where we were falling a little bit short um, another one was providing an accurate claim length expectation. So making sure that your clients know how long, approximately, this um, claim is going to take. So on a fire job, it could be you know quite a bit of time before you replace all the materials and so on and so forth. But giving your people a very realistic estimate of the length of the claim, how long it's going to be before they're back solid the way they were before they started. And the last thing, um, limit claimant repeating information, and that's a big one. I think it's a big one for all businesses. And, Dieter, I know you just drive all of us crazy. You go to the doctor's office, you fill out five forms, and every one of the forms has your name and address on the top of it. And i got to fill out my address five times. That's insanity. You know, in this day and age, we shouldn't have to do that. And he was pointing out that a lot of water damage restoration and fire restoration companies make the same mistake, and they have the client repeat the same information. And And there's ways around that, obviously, but that was a big issue, a big point that I got. And then the last thing I want to point out was in their survey they found less than half of claimants got a post claim contact so in other words after the claim was shut you know was closed the project was done only less than 50% of people ever got a call back from the company or from the manager or from the the, the project manager or the office manager or whomever asking them is everything okay? Are you happy with how we did the job? Or just, you know, thanks for your business. Um, And that was a big, big finding in this survey of uh, water, or restoration industry uh, claims satisfaction survey. Dieter, any comments?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I I, I think that is an excellent idea. (laughs) In fact, uh, 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 I like those. And People who know me know that I sometimes open my mouth and voice my uh, opinions. In fact, I just read this morning a survey on airline satisfaction. And (laughs) interestingly, all American airlines came out on top. Well, for that matter, on the bottom, on top of the bad (laughs) list. And uh, said, "Well, we we surveyed five thousand six hundred and ninety-three people, or whatever it was." And my my comment was, "Where do I complain? I don't even know how to put a complaint in. I, I don't. Do they have a post? I had never seen a postcard or an address in uh, uh, in any airline. Uh, I don't know how to complain." And I don't want to complain to the, uh, to the flight attendant or the captain. They're not going to transmit that mess, my message to somebody who should know it. But, yeah, I, uh, I I agree with this. And every time I send out an invoice and every time I send a hard copy of, and I still do that, by the way, uh, I like that. Uh, if I send out a hard copy, it doesn't bother me if I pay 45 or whatever it is. since. I have these forever <laughs> stamps, and I don't know how much it is anymore. But every time I do that, with every report, I throw in one of my business cards. I said, "Here he was. That's what he did," and I have no problem uh, doing that. And that's a good use for business cards. They know, ah, here he is, and there is my my home phone number on there, my cell phone number is on there, my email is on there, and my mailing address and my name. So I think that is a good idea, and how should I say? It gives you a feeling of satisfaction. Yep. That here he is not a guy whom I never ever will see again, and I, yeah, I kind of like that.
3: All right, Dieter. Let's go. I have one more thing. Well, there were a lot of great things at the RIA conference, but I don't want to spend the whole show talking about conferences. But there, you know, there was some good stuff that I'm I'm bringing back, and I think is important for people. The other major thing I noticed was a, a big focus on, and understandably so, the what they call the Restoration Industry Legal Fund. Um, this is a huge issue. We've got, uh, they had a, a video of Ben Justinson, who is a small, you know, mid-sized contractor up in, I believe, Washington State. So he got about 16 people on his payroll. Ends up in a lawsuit. He, be, he gets sued for, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, patent infringement on this heat drying thing. So uh, he's sued for patent infringement. The people who have patented the use of heat for killing bugs and now for use on disaster restoration, drying out buildings, not just disaster restoration, guys, be careful on this, too. It's also if you're drying out a building post-construction. So you got all this wet drywall, wet paper, you know, et cetera, you're drying it out. If you use heat in that process, you may well end up in a lawsuit over this patent infringement. Well, anyway, uh, they had a great movie basically of ben justinson it cost him three hundred and sixty thousand dollars to defend this case he beat it he won he was not guilty of patent infringement but he didn't get a dime of it back so it's a big big issue out there and now there's another one surfacing so that people are aware and this one is on using dehumidification and air movement during the drying process. So the Restoration Industry Legal Fund, they call it the RILF, and if you go to the RIA's homepage, is a fund that RIA is putting together. They're currently in the process of trying to sue to invalidate the heat patent, and I'm sure they're going to try and help if they can get through this heat patent one with the other patents that may come out. That's why it's just the Restoration Industry Legal Fund, not RIA or whatever, very important for the disaster restoration guys out there. If you can support them in any way, I would urge you to. Even individuals that are, you know, if you got a job and your boss is running a disaster company, because, you know, that's how you feed your family. Um, might not be a bad thing to, to contribute to, Dieter? Yeah, well, just curious.
1: absolutely. Uh, uh, old we mentality? all know that litigation is uh, very expensive endeavor, and that's why many, many uh, uh, lawsuits are getting settled out of court, because it's it's just exorbitant, the amount. And uh, in the United States, we have a system that is different from that what is used in, uh, in Europe. If you have a nuisance lawsuit, a stupid lo- lo- uh, uh, lawsuit, and um, you win that one, The other side pays, not you. Well, that's the same thing. We remember what O.J. Simpson, he lost a civil uh, case, and he, quote, owes somebody $35 million. He hasn't paid a dime. I don't know how much the other family, I forgot their name, and it doesn't matter how much they spent on that. So, yes, in fact, I had somebody uh I had a rental property I was stupid enough to do that and somebody wrecked the place what else is new and I went to the local judge and uh, I won I mean hands down and here comes the guy I uh, he damaged about $5000 worth and the judge says hey you are guilty you know you got to uh, compensate uh, 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 me the the the, 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 the home owner and he said, "Oh yeah, I, but I said I'm a little tight right now, and I have a wife and two kids in school and so on." I said, "How much can you afford?" I said, "Oh, about five dollars a month." <laughs> oh, geez. Well, hey. so he he made two payments. Now for me to sue him again cost me fifty dollars. Yep. Yep. And then he gets hit over the head again. He's not going to go to prison. He doesn't. The judge doesn't say, hey, we take it out of your paycheck, a 100 or 200 bucks a month immediately. Uh, that doesn't work that way. So what incentive does he have to do to,
3: to, to be a nice person? Zero. Yeah. Well, that's the the industry legal fund, I think, is a, a good thing for the folks out there. There was another contractor that same situation. Uh, I want to say it's Felix Harada. I hope I got the name correct, Felix, but it was, um, he just won as well. But again, he had to pay for that. So if everybody has to keep paying these individual cases, it would be better to put it all together and fight it up front and and invalidate the patent. But uh, we 'll see what happens on that i don 't know that 's just something we 've kind of been covering I, I, I think it 's interesting i 'm um, not sure where it will go from here, but we shall see and you know i don 't know maybe you know maybe there 's something to these patents you know, I remember back in the day, Dieter, there was a patent on negative pressure in uh, asbestos containments. Uh, we could talk about that a little later as well. kind of Howard Runyon was involved with that yeah, yeah, that was the Natalie patent. Hey, and that is a good question.
1: And I have a, a question. Let's let's take a look at that. I mean, it has been known for hundreds of years, hundreds of years before lawyers were on this world. Well, there were lawyers in Rome. <laughs> um, anyway, um, there, um, yeah, heat has been used to dry things, and we know if you put heat in it, uh, it dries better. That's why we heat our. Uh, um, the dryers are, uh, but the washer and dryer when we are done with the laundry that goes faster can you patent that I remember another uh, uh, a, a situation which is pretty much the same uh, some people and I know Joe knows the name uh, Ben mm-hmm. uh who wanted to uh, copyright the number 7 well you can't copyright number 7 there were, of course, uh, you know, guys over here. They made uh, 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 t-shirts with the number seven on it. They said, "Oh no, no, I, you can't, you can't copyright everything." And I don't know. I mean, obviously, this is the case for lawyers. Uh, heat in itself is that one thing. Is the direct application or the specific application is that patentable? I don't know. That was the same thing. With the negative air machines uh, over there. They had been used forever and ever and ever to keep a room under negative pressure, or for that matter, the other room under positive pressure.
0: Right.
1: It has been used, but was it. I guess the patent was particular to asbestos abatement. Yes. Sir. And that may be something where we have to talk to a lawyer. I do not know.
3: You know, this whole patent law thing, I don't know I don't know enough about it to, you know, comment one way or the other if it's right, wrong, or indifferent. All I know is that it's a big problem for the industry and either we're going to uh, have people work together to try and fix the issue or they're going to end up paying a little bit of a uh, royalty on just about you know, on every job essentially and you know if that's if the patents found to be valid then that's what will happen and we shall see we'll continue to cover it but we're covering the fact that ria is uh, working hard at trying to do something about it next up I want to talk real briefly, I just got back from the IICRC board meeting, and that was um, interesting, my second one now, and um, I don't think there's a whole lot to discuss with respect to what happened other than, you know, the thing I like about it is they leave it open to people, and there's always people there to just sit in the room and listen in, and um, other than, of course, executive session, I find that refreshing, Um, you know, you you're not just talking to a bunch of fellow board members. You've got an audience of people sitting there that are listening to the board discuss different issues, and I I find that enlightening after my years on the IAQA board where nobody was there. We didn't really let people know, in my opinion, where it was and what we were doing and invite them to show up uh, like the IICRC does. So, you know, we've been tough on IICRC in the past, and, and, um, you know, maybe that was... uh, Something that uh, maybe it was fair, maybe maybe it wasn't, and we're more than happy to get the other side on. I got a little complaint about that here recently. You know, we had a show years ago with a guy named Charlie Cressy, and then I hear, what, four years later that somebody didn't like it. Hey, don't just sit back and be mad at me, folks. Jeff... Give me a call. I'll put you on the show anytime, Mr. Bishop. Just let me know, buddy. Don't call, you know, don't tell me four years later you're pissed off at me about something we said four years ago. I can't help you now, although I'll be more than happy to try. Let us know, folks. We like to get both sides of the story on here anytime. Anyway, I thought the board worked together really well. I think they're headed in the right direction. I think we've got uh, a long way to go, obviously, but I'm very pleased with the new leadership. I think Tony Wheelwright's done a great job. And, you know, I think the IICRC is a big dog that really could do a lot of good for the industry. We shall see. I think we need to stick to standards and certification. Uh, some people get the wrong impression, thinking I don't think education's important, the instructors are important. They're vital, but they don't belong right within the exam making and exam taking process in my opinion. But I think they're vital to the future of things. And by the way, there's also the IICRCA now the Council of Associations and I think that's going to go places too so we're going to leave that be we're going to talk a little bit about healthy buildings after we come back from our break here but before we go to break Jess I got two things one let's get that website for Mr. Krell's magazine I want you folks to check this out it's healthy indoors and it's um, iaq.net nice simple one iaq.net and you can check out the Healthy Indoors magazine there. I think Bob's done a nice job with that, and he seems to be consistently getting it out. The second thing was let's go to whoop, the trivia question. I noticed we've got some trivia players online today here, and I didn't see you last week. Of course, it was Good Friday. I should have known better than to do a show on Good Friday. All right. Last week, Cliff had a two-part trivia question sponsored by Triska, as always, the tri-state restorers and specialty cleaners who will also be having their annual meeting at this year's Healthy Building Summit at Seven Springs in Champion, Pennsylvania. Talk more about that after the break. Now... Let's move on to the two part trivia question. Let's see. Who termed, who coined the term spotless reputation and where was it first used? So we have a two part question. Who coined the term spotless reputation and where was it first used? And I want to shout out to Brian Baker and thank you for today's trivia question prize. Jump on this one. You're going to like the prize Brian sent us uh, from Custom Vac up in Canada. Let's stop and thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds with the second half of today's IAQ radio show. Thanks
2: to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org.
3: And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers. To provide superior environmental test
2: instrumentation, visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors.
3: John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop Visit them at www.johndon.com.
2: Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products.
3: All right, we're back for the second half. We've got a winner, correct, Derek Johnson, Coastal Carolina. Good job on the trivia question. We'll get out your prize here very soon. We'll have uh, just get that out in the mail. They're nice. Anyway, and thanks again to Brian Baker for helping supply this week's prize uh, up at Custom Vac in Canada. Now, let's go on. Dieter, we've got the Healthy Building Summit coming up here at the – this, I think, is our – fifth year? Yeah, five years. It will be our sixth year now. We're doing a little summer break. We did it at Indian Lake for a few years. Actually, I think four years. And then we went to uh, Hidden Valley last year. This year, we're moving up to the big dog status. We're going to Seven Springs Resort in Champion, PA, which is a beautiful ski resort with uh, several... Very nice, uh, very nice facility. There, even in the summertime, there's a lot of activity. In fact, we had to nail down the rooms. We got everything nailed down, Jess. Okay, had to get everything nailed down. We'll be up there August 18 to 22, but. August 20 to 22 is the advanced healthy building professional, what we used to call the advanced indoor environmentalist course. Last year, we did the same course with um, different speakers. We had as our keynote last year, Sam Rashkin from the USDOE, great guy. Um, Then, we also got uh, this year we 've got Dr. Hung Chung, Dr. Chung is the uh, great guy he was with the Maryland Department of Health uh, looking forward to his presentation keynote he 'll be on for four hours actually this year we 're going to talk a lot about how to work with the m d how to actually do a home health assessment, a building health assessment, and you know make it something that you can um, that, that can work for the doctor as well because a lot of times we're working with patients that are working with MDs and we send a report and they can't really figure out what it says. So those are the kind of things we'd like to talk about this year. We also want to just kind of get into what is a healthy building, you know. What is health? What is a healthy building? Um, and, and in my experience, and I want to go to Dieter on this in just a moment, it seems like we've moved, and I think rightfully so, away from a regulatory um, numbers approach to what is a healthy building. Nothing wrong with numbers. In fact, I, I go with a um, friend up in Boston uh, who commonly reminds us, you've got to measure things, you've got to measure things. There's a, you know quite a few people that talk to us about that uh but anyway you got to measure things we do need numbers but we also need to use some common sense we seem to be going away from more of a regulatory approach like we had with asbestos and lead more toward a common sense approach the one i like is the national center for healthy housing i think they keep it simple keep it smart it starts with people because without people we don't have to worry about indoor environments they discussed, in this case, they're use more residential, so the house as a system. We can also talk about the building as a system. Great stuff. And then they have the seven principles. Keep it dry. Keep it clean. Keep it pest-free. Keep it ventilated. Keep it safe. Keep it contaminant-free. And keep it maintained. So they keep it simple. I like that as the eighth one. Keep it simple. Theater comments on what is a healthy building?
1: Well, I agree with all of the above there. I don't want to have rats and mice in my house. Um, I certainly don't want to have any moisture in my house, even though I have been trying for three months to get the relative humidity in my bedroom up. It doesn't work. I have a humidifier, one of those freestanding ones in the room. And uh, during the colder months, I mean, in one night, it, it put uh, one gallon of water into the air, and I have a hygrometer up there. <laughs> it went from 299 to 30% relative humidity, if that high. So I, I still let it run. And by the way, I'm using for the water, I'm using the water, the condensation water from my furnace, And there are no minerals in that one, so that is fine. And, uh, yeah, during the summer, I don't need it because I have enough humidity. I'm going to turn on the air conditioner to get the humidity out. Well, I wish we could put that one into a a good average over the year. But I jotted down in uh, my calendar, August 18th through 27th, seven Spring's. Which, by the way, is in this for those people who were there last year, it's basically in the same area where we were last year at Hidden Valley. It's not far from basic same, basically the same idea, and you always can uh, we will get you uh, information on Joe's uh, website and we do it uh, uh, that way.
3: Yeah, it's in the what they call the Laurel Highlands of Pennsylvania. Those of you that are familiar with PA Oh, which is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Oh yeah. This is this was the playground for the melons and the fricks and all those people with the big bucks. Yes. Uh, now they left a little piece of it for us poor folk anyway. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's gorgeous up here. You've got Falling Waters up here, and you've got uh, Seven Springs, and, and just a, a, a gorgeous part of the country. The Allegheny Mountains run between basically Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and then... This section here is kind of between Pittsburgh and Harrisburg and a lot of you are familiar with Shanksville Flight 93, which crashed about three miles from here. So this is my home is in the Laurel Highlands. And they have a really nice memorial up here now. It's a, a federal memorial for the Flight 93. So that's another thing people like to do. Uh, While they're up this way. So, what we plan on doing, Dieter, is is focusing on health this year, but also on building science and how the two are tied together. And I'm trying, I'm I'm working, I'm trying to get either Lou Harriman or Terry Brennan over here this year, along with Dr. Chung, along with yourself. Yeah, that
1: is fine. And uh, I think uh, we know, we have learned that. You don't solve all the problems, or you don't solve many problems by just buttoning up your house. In fact, we found out that that is not a good idea. Absolutely. And the, the problem was when we had, well, what, 25 or whatever it was years ago, the fake energy crisis, and everybody said, oh, yeah, gas is getting expensive, and heating and air conditioning, electric, and, 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 and said, we got to do this and this and this. Well, that is not a good idea. Uh, Like I said that on the other show, my house was built about 35 years ago when people, by and large, didn't give uh, too much concern to good insulation. And uh, it is not well insulated. My house leaks all over the place, but I certainly don't have any problem uh, other than the clutter in my office. (laughs) But, I mean, environmentally, um, uh, I don't have any problem. And my my gas bill is a little bit higher, and my air conditioning bill is a little bit higher. But I gladly pay for that. That is okay with me. But can we do that better? Absolutely. We haven't engineered ventilation systems for houses. They were basically all the same. All of them were basically an afterthought. We put the furnace down there, and here is the plenum, and from the plenum we Uh, 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 make a couple of holes in there and we put a couple of trunks you all have seen those Joe has seen them, hundreds of them so have I and you said oh my no wonder this isn't really balanced and no wonder that the air that is coming in is distributed correctly into the house Yep. Or into the building. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a, a house. So I think so there, and I agreed with what Joe just said. We got to keep the one thing is for sure we got to keep the moisture out. The other stuff you can use an a vacuum cleaner and so on. And even with vacuum cleaners, you've got to watch out. If there is somebody who has asthma in the house, the standard vacuum cleaner, as good as they are for my woodworking shop downstairs, I have a, a craftsman, what, what, 49.95 or something like that. And interestingly, when I turn it on, I see some dust being spilled out immediately from the exhaust. So if you have somebody with asthma in the house and you have a regular standard uh, vacuum cleaner, what you are doing is you are picking up the big stuff that bothers you. and said, oh, that looks dirty. I do this. But at the end of your vacuum bag come out millions, billions of small particles. And if I don't know whether we have time today, but at another show we talk about, and, and, and Joe mentioned it, VOCs. The the organic, volatile, the gases, and the particulates. So you got to watch uh, that one. You think they're doing something good and so on. doesn't work. That's the same thing. By buying a little bit better um, uh, filter for your heating system and, uh, you know, the, They start at 99 cents, the blue ones. I use those. I don't have any allergies, and it keeps the dirt out from the uh, fans and the ductwork, but it doesn't do anything, anything against small particulate matter. And what is small particulate matter? Something like cigarette smoke. It doesn't do anything. So we got to rethink that, and uh, we may have to redesign the hardware that we are in putting into the houses, and it is not all that expensive. If you have a house for a hundred thousand dollars, or or a hundred units, I don't know how many units on a percent basis basis goes into the heating system. Is it eight percent, nine percent, something like that? It's not ninety percent. So we have got to watch out for that and. Uh,
3: may have to rethink and redesign and re-engineer. You know, I'm surprised we don't see more central vac systems in homes these days. And I've got Alex Statner's on um, checking in here. Alex, hello, out in San Francisco area. He brings up an interesting subject, healthy building materials and using building materials that have less off-gassing, essentially essentially healthy building. And that was a good focus. I didn't bring that up at the Indoor Air Quality Association conference. There was more focus on using healthier building materials. I guess what you have to weigh there is... Um, Is the healthier building material going to be as durable and and last as long? And, and, you know, all these questions are tough questions, but that's what we wrestle with. The other thing we'll be wrestling with at the conference again this year, Dieter, you brought it up. Um, The first time in the, you know, the 70s when we did the first big, you know, round of energy efficiency, we really didn't pay close enough attention to building science. It's much better this time. I mean, I've taken the, Harris, the Hers, Henry, what is it, Energy Raiders System course, and they really did focus a lot on building science and, and trying to avoid creating more problems. But you brought up ventilation. That's one of the things I plan to do this year at the courses. We're going to actually try and design a basic ventilation system for a residential property. We're going to use my house, Dieter. Um I want to get this place. I've been Putting a design together for a little central uh, ventilation and mechanical system here, and I'd like to use that as the demonstration for this year's event. The other thing we'll talk about is some of the research we did at last year's event where we set up three rooms that were identical. Well, they were pretty close to as close as you're going to get with hotel rooms to identical rooms side by side. We use just negative air. We use negative air with air scrubbing and just air scrubbing. And we monitor just about, you know, every parameter, um, you know, many parameters. So temperature, relative humidity, water activity, uh, moisture content. We monitor particle counts. We monitored, we did spore traps. We did, and we're going to bring out all that information this year and then kind of Break down what we found last year. I'm losing my voice here today. Dear. I don't know why. But anyway.
1: Well, hang in there for another 10 minutes, and we have it made. <laughs> yeah, all
3: right. yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Now, listen, I'm, I know we've talked a lot about this year's event and all so on and so forth. With the reminder I sent to everyone, if you get a chance, check out the um, reminder that I sent out to everybody that the cl- that the – The show was starting today because I included a graphic that I wanted to talk to Dieter about here. It's a graphic, and we're going into asbestos a little bit here. I've only got 10 minutes left. I wanted to touch on asbestos and how... Yeah, I got 10 minutes. I wanted to touch on how, you know, a lot of the things that we do in in at least mold remediation and other types of indoor environmental, you know, sewage, et cetera, a lot of those concepts that we're using now came from the early days of asbestos, the containment, engineering controls, negative pressure, personal protective equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I wanted to get into a little bit with Dieter on on a a graphic that I think is one of the most interesting I've ever seen. And it's a graphic that we included on that invite. It's actually a photo from a book. Um, It's by Brooke Mossman, who's a medical doctor uh, who... Looked at asbestos, and it's a chrysotile fiber in the alveoli, and it's being attacked, for lack of a better word, I'll let you describe it better, Dieter, by macrophages trying to break down this fiber. And then I found some other neat photos: one of a fiber being, uh, you know, with macrophages attached to it, and then another one that just shows the inside of that alveoli. Dieter, can you talk to us a little bit about that photo, and then? Um, maybe tell us a little bit about, you know, the early days with your asbestos training center. Yeah, this picture is some um, 40 years old. I met
1: uh, Brooke Mossman, Dr. Mossman, years ago when I was a Ph.D. student or SCD student. And uh, I was trying to do similar things. And, uh, yeah, she she gave me this picture. I had the original, one of the originals. I don't know what happened to it. But anyway, it is a a beautiful, beautiful picture. What we are seeing, it's an electron uh, micrograph uh, inside the alveoli. It's a little bit distorted over here. And if anybody wants the original version that happens sometimes when you do PowerPoint, it squishes it a little bit. It's uh, watching TV on a high-definition screen, on a wide-angle screen, <laughs> all of a sudden everybody shrinks by a foot. Anyway, if anybody wants the the other one, I have it on my computer. Uh, just email me and uh, uh, with, you know, send asbestos, pictures. If I get it, uh, I will just uh, return that to you. And uh, my email address is my last name: W E Y E L. One, one, at com, No underline, forward slashes, overline, and what have you.
3: And it's, not, it's not spam. I mean, we've got to watch the AOL addresses these days. My goodness. I guess a bunch of the old ones got stolen and people were sending them out as a... Profile. I haven't had a problem. No, yours is fine. I think it's what it is, is people that had that address and then abandoned it, you know, over the years. And now I see them. And just recently, over the last couple of weeks, all these old AOL addresses, and there's a virus attached to them. So be careful, folks. But Dieter's is clean. Why all that? Yeah, mine is clean, for for sure. All right.
1: So let's talk. What is that photo? Anyway if we look at this we see on the left and the right hand side really this is microscopic this is an electron micrograph micrograph we see the inside of an alveolus one alveolus we have millions of them that's the bottom end of the lung the dry end of the lung underneath from here in the back of this picture would be the capillaries, which uh, where the heart pumps the blood past the alveoli to do what? Pick up oxygen and drop off CO2. Doesn't matter. But it is beautiful. You see this over here. We have, Mother Nature has given us cleaning cells in our lung. And by the way, those cleaning cells are also on our liver and other places of the body. But here in the lung, they are. Uh, uh, cells which actually can move and they are doing and uh, trying to do a good job here are these asbestos fibers Crocidolite asbestos is more resistant in the body fluids than uh, for instance chrysotile. but here are these fibers they don't belong there mother nature screwed up how did a a fiber which is 10 times longer than the cleaning cell, how did it get there? Well, here is the problem. Aerodynamically, fibers behave in the lung, in the airstream that gets us down there to their diameter rather than their length. That's how they got there. They don't belong there. Very small particles One-tenth of what you can see, they can get there, and then the macrophages can engulf them, they can digest them, and believe it or not, carry them out of the alveoli into the respiratory tract, and they come up with what is called the mucociliary escalator. That is the SLIM that is on the inside of our airways, which is being moved up continuously from the bottom to our throat, and then it comes up to the top, and what do we do with it? You have two options. You swallow it. We do that most of the time. Or you can spit it out. I swallow it. (laughs) Uh, So that is what is happening over there. Let
3: me stop you for a minute, because you just answered a question I've had for years. All right. So they break it down. When you say break it down... What this this particle, whatever it is, when they can break it down. Obviously there's times when they can't because it's a mineral or whatever the case may be, and we could talk about that. But when they right. break it down, what are they breaking it down into smaller pieces of the same particle? Or are they actually breaking it down, you know, the the, the composition? If they can
1: digest it, there is a biotransformation going on. Heaven knows what's happening there. I don't know.
3: Okay okay
1: but that can be broken down but it will if you have a a a a, a silica particle down there it will not break it down into smaller one if it is small enough and it got there because it was not a fiber the macrophages can can engulf it they trying to digest it they can't digest it and they carry it out uh, which is wonderful that cleaning process, a one-way trip from the end of the alveoli, we are still microscopic at the bottom of the lung, from there uh, up here to the larynx pharynx where yeah, we, we, we collected up here, in the, the upper part of the lung. That one takes, believe it or not, 24 hours. That's it. Hmm. For the macrophages to, A, engulf particulate matter, and then move it out of the alveoli to the mucociliary escalator. That takes about seven days. Hmm. That has been studied over. And that process is not as fast as the other one. That process has been uh, studied at the University of Pittsburgh. Ted Hatch and Paul Gross worked on that years ago. So that is nothing new. The other pictures over here um, uh, are wonderful, too. You again see fibers being attacked by cells, which want, they know that stuff does not belong here. It's my job to get it out. These poor cells cannot do the job. On the other hand, what is even interesting is how aggressive The enzymes can be inside these cleaning cells. What they can break down, it's unbelievable. Sometimes it happens when a macrophage is breaking something down that the breakdown product may attack the cell wall of the alveoli. That's not a good idea. But the cell, the cleaning cell, the macrophage, which, by the way, means big eater, uh, macrophage, uh, doesn't know any better, but it tries to do its job to which it was uh, created and say, yeah, that's my job, to get them out of there.
3: So when it, it can't break it down for whatever reason, what happens then?
1: Well, in this case over here, the fiber may be staying in there. And uh, they will be still trying, and then the fiber can do the damage. And that is happening when you get asbestosis. You inhale fibers. They can't be uh, removed in a hurry. They are staying there, some of them longer than others. Chrysotile miraculously somehow disappears. Nobody knows how, why, what, what and where. I was looking at that years ago, and I didn't get any uh, better than the other learned people. So they stay there, and they can do the damage. Now, now, if you destroy one alveolus, that's a big deal. Who cares? It doesn't matter. You have millions of them. So one of them is over there. Here is what is happening. Mother Nature sees, hey, somebody is poking in here. What does it do? It repairs the damage with scar tissue. Okay. Now, the scar tissue is not as good as the, uh, the the cell wall of the alveoli, but it stays there. And if it ha- happens to a handful or a thousand, which probably happened in all of our lungs of an adult person, it doesn't matter at all. There is so much reserve capacity. But if you inhale a lot and that happens all over, there is a lot of scar tissue. The scar tissue is thicker. It doesn't make it makes the lung less elastic. It's thicker, so therefore oxygen cannot be transferred as easily from the alveolus into the bloodstream, the capillary bed on the other side. So now you have asbestosis. You can see that on an X-ray very nicely. I know what they look like. By the way, if somebody is interested in that, I'm looking at it over here. One of my favorite books, it's the Siba Collection Respiratory System. That is volume number seven. The uh, editor is uh, Dr. Neder, who made all the wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, drawings in there. If anybody is interested in the respiratory system, buy that book, and it is not bad. It, I think I paid many, many years ago $55, $60 for it, and it's well worth the money. So that is what is happening. That is a very interesting process.
3: You know, and that happens with all kinds of things, I guess, not, you know, anything that gets into the lower lung. You've got this process. And be removed and does
1: the damage. We have asbestosis. What does a coal miner get? We call it black lung. But what is black lung actually? Black lung is coal dust? Yes. And what is the active ingredient of the coal dust that we in- encounter? I measured, I don't know how many thousand samples in coal mines and I looked at them. The active ingredient is silica. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in Sil- silica. So you get what they call black lung, you inhale the uh, coal dust and the silica particles. The silica particles do basically the same thing that the asbestos fiber does. They destroy the alveoli. Mother Nature encapsulates that with um, uh, um, uh, tissue, repair tissue, scar tissue. You see that very nicely on an X-ray also. And then once the alveoli are destroyed, there are no more cleaning cells. So now you inhale on top of it, what, black coal particles. They can't be removed. They stay there. Okay. Okay. That's where we get the black lung from. Beautifully shown in the SIBA collection number seven, uh, the respiratory system. Uh, They have that one for the nervous system and the skeleton system, and, and it's a it's just, it's absolutely beautiful book, and for the money, it's, it's, it's incredible. I use, I, uh, uh, for some of my presentations, I make slides out of them and use those, yes.
3: So silica, asbestos fibers, what else have you looked at uh, the, that's a durable material that gets into the alveoli and, and causes us problems? Very
1: small glass fibers. The new glass fibers, the engineered glass fibers, uh, which are made, they are of that size, that they don't, they are large enough that they don't make it, even though they are fibers, they don't make it to the alveoli. Here comes, a, and interestingly, it's, it's hard to believe, even if you take the smaller glass fibers, which were used in inhalation, it is a miracle how they get removed from the lung. Hmm. virtually with no uh, damage to the lung. Hmm. We don't know really what is happening, but hmm. we know that the enzymes and the fluids inside the lung are incredibly aggressive, and they know how to destroy foreign materials that, uh, which don't belong there.
3: What about lead dust, dear? If you get real small particles of lead in, in your...
1: That is, that, that is a problem. The lead is being dissolved, no doubt about it, by the same fluids that do that. Now they are being dissolved, and they go across where? Into the blood. Now you have the lead in the blood. Okay.
3: Okay.
1: And uh, that is not, well, where does the blood go? Well, Every once organ. it's through the heart, it goes into two directions immediately. One is the brain, the other one is back into the heart mm-hmm. because you need the brain to <laughs> to control the heart and you need the heart to uh, put the oxygen into our bodies. And if we were an insect, we don't need a heart and a, and a blood system. They have, interestingly, also called trachea. They have, <laughs> don't quote me on that, like holes in the body and they absorb the oxygen through their skin, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we, we we need our heart and we need the blood uh, uh, to uh, uh, transport the oxygen to our organs.
3: Dieter, it's always fun and fascinating, and, and, and I enjoy talking to you about these things. We could talk for another hour, but I think we're going to wrap it up here. Um, the next time we talk like this, I'd like to go into a little bit more about the the engineering controls on, during remediation, etc. cetera. But um, we're going to have to save that for a future show.
1: Oh, yeah, that will be fine. And I gladly uh, uh, take part with that, too. And on the other hand, if, uh, we, if somebody, if we see an interest, uh, we have uh, a couple of hours and hours uh, during August 18th through the 22nd. And if we want to, I can put something together for two hours on stuff that I know, asbestos and lead and uh, silica and a couple of other particles which we studied. Uh, if that is of interest to somebody,
3: in a direct way, it has something to do with healthy buildings. Well, and that's what I'd like to do as is kind of have you overview the whole respiratory Tracked and how it works, and how these, you know, exactly what we've just done as a setup to getting into when Dr. Chung comes on and talks about how they do their healthy building evaluations. So, oh, I would love to talk about that. Great. We look forward to it and look forward to getting together with you up here. Um, The advanced course will be the 20th through the 22nd in Seven Springs, but uh, the whole week we'll be doing the regular indoor environmentalist course, so that'll start on the 18th if you know anybody that needs that. Come on up and enjoy the beautiful Laurel Highlands of Pennsylvania and get away for a little bit and uh, meet with a lot of other great people. We'll have... Kevin Kennedy will be here, and uh, Herb Lehman coming up from the lab, and Mike McGinnis is coming in, and uh, just a, a whole list of people. Eric Shapiro will be over here from Dr. Chung. I'm trying to get Dr. Balby from New Jersey. Hopefully he'll be able to make it out. Um, just Oh, I've got Chuck Violin coming in, by the way, with Violin Management Associates. You know why, dear? Let me end with this. And it's a good thing I got Alex on the line, Alex Statner out there in, in San Francisco. I've been so happy to see. He, he seems to be doing very well. I don't know, but it seems like he's making some money on, on doing indoor environmental quality, green building stuff. And that's how we're going to end the two-and-a-half-day sessions. I'm going to end with Chuck Violin, Violin Management Associates, and we're going to talk about how to to make some money because, you know, we, we can't do this as as much as we like to help people. We've also got to make a living. So Chuck is going to do a specific session for us at the end of the two-and-a-half days on how to manage your business and make sure that while you're out there helping folks build healthier homes and fix up their homes so that they're healthier and, and clean up after disasters so that we have healthier building environments. You can also make a couple bucks, and uh, you know, not be worried about how you're going to pay the rent yourself the following month. So that's how we're going to finish up this year. And looking forward to it, I hope y'all can make it. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks so much to this week's guest and our weekly technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Dieter, great to have you. Always love you. Everybody, and I got
1: one person who wanted the pictures already. All Isn't right. that nice? Great. News, and uh, you know who it is. He's in Winnipeg, Canada. <laughs>
3: ah, okay, our friend up in Winnipeg. Good to have you on, Brian, Alex, everybody that was on. Andy, uh, good to see you. Of course, good to Hey, hello, you. Andy. Andy is also interested in... Legend. And and Dottie's back. My Dottie, my my top fan, she left for a while there. We were worried about the bandwidth here, and she wasn't signing in, so it's good to see Dottie back and doing her weekly. Of course, she never gave up her weekly quote. Anyway, this is Radio Joe saying thanks to Dr. Wow, to Jessica Lawson at the controls, to my partner, the Z-Man. He'll be back next week. Most importantly, to all of our growing group of loyal listeners out there, great job, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate the comments. We'll see you next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. You've been talk-